Welcome to the Modern Merrowmen podcast with Tom Hicks and John DeVito. Modern Merrowmen is a podcast on the Man of God Network brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. We are hosting a weekly conversation on the law and the gospel so that church leaders and Christian lay people will rightly divide the word of truth. And Tom, uh, you are back together with me here. Yes, sir. It's great to be back with you. Merry Christmas, man. Merry Christmas. And we're having a special episode today where we want to offer a Christmas reflection on the law and the gospel. And so this is a little bit of a different episode for us, but I hope and trust that it will be helpful to those of you who are listening here uh, with us. And so we want to spend our time in a passage of scripture. And and if you have a Bible in front of you or close by, you might want to pick it up and uh, open it to Galatians chapter four. So we want to offer some reflections on Galatians four verses one to seven. And uh, Tom, as we begin, how about you uh, read the read this passage for us? Yeah, Galatians four, verse one, Paul says, I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. And John, do you just want to give us a brief overview of the letter of Galatians? To share the context for us? Yeah, Uh, of course, this letter we we know is written by Paul. But Paul was a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, then brought up in the capital city of Jerusalem there in Israel. Uh, He was taught under the Pharisee leader, Gamaliel, to uphold the strictness of the Jewish law as revealed to their fathers by God. And it was because of his zeal towards God and his Jewish religion that Paul then persecuted Christians, uh, where he sought their imprisonment and even death. But of course, all this changed when he was traveling down the Damascus Road and he encountered the resurrected Christ. And so Paul went from believing that Jesus was a disgraced man to recognizing him as the divine Savior. And God then chose Paul to be saved from his sins and to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ to the Gentiles, which is why Christ set Paul apart as an apostle. And Paul became one, of course, that we know boldly proclaiming Christ to the nations and planting churches of those who believed in Christ. But here, as we consider this letter, Paul is writing to the churches there in Galatia because they've been threatened by false teachers And of course, these false teachers often show up in the New Testament, but they're known here as the Judaizers, these Jewish Christians who came among them and said that in order to be accepted by God, you must not only believe in Jesus Christ, but also become a Jew by being circumcised and keeping all the law that God had revealed to his people through Moses. In other words, essentially they were saying since Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, they needed to become Jews in order to be saved by Christ. And so Paul then is defending the true gospel of grace here, which he preached against the false gospel that had swept through these churches in Galatia. And he's warning them that they are forsaking Christ and abandoning Christ's gospel 
by listening to and, and by following these Judaizers. And so it's here as we come to chapter four, then, that Paul writes of Christ's coming or, or Christ's birth or incarnation. And so I'm wondering then, uh, as you consider this and these this passage, uh, how our condition is described before Christ came. Yeah, well, in Galatians 4.3, Paul says that before they knew Christ, they were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. Now, that, that Greek phrase could be literally translated that they were enslaved to the elemental spirits of the world. And uh, many commentators take that as a reference to pagan worship. So that what, what did the pagans believe in? Well, they believed in salvation and this worldly blessing by working to obey false gods. And uh, these Gentiles, of course, were formerly pagans. You know, you think of uh, the Gentiles and Gal- the churches of Galatia, you know, and, and modern day Turkey. Uh, they were not Jews. What they worshiped before they came to Christ was false gods of earth, air, fire, water. And, you know, and they tried to appease these gods to avoid disasters and to gain earthly blessing and earthly life. And so they, they offered sacrifices and they obeyed their gods and they tried to figure out what their gods wanted of them so that they could uh, have the life that they wanted. And so this paganism, like all paganism and all false religion, is a work for salvation religion. Mm -hmm. Uh, Later in our passage in Galatians 4, verse 5, Paul says that these Gentiles were under the law. Mm -hmm. So there's a connection between being enslaved to the elementary principles of the world or the elemental spirits of the world and being under the law. Now, this Mm -hmm. phrase, under the law, in Paul's writings has has something close to a, a technical meaning. It doesn't just mean that they are responsible to obey the law. Many people are confused by that. They think that, you know, if you think you have to obey the law, you're under the law. But no, every personal agent that God has created, including angels and human beings, are responsible to God, responsible to obey his law. But this phrase, under the law, really refers to being under the law as a covenant. So it's it's under the law as a command to do this and live to obey for life. And so if you're under the law, you're in Adam, you're under the covenant of works, and it means that you're responsible uh, to render perfect, perpetual obedience to God's law to be justified and to have life eternal. And so for sinners to be under the law means that they're condemned under the curse of the law because they can't obey it. You know, they've, they've broken his law, and so they're cursed and condemned. And the irony here in Paul's letter to the Galatians is that he's saying that if the Gentiles obey the Judaizers, if the Gentiles do what the Judaizers want them to do, to try to seek justification through circumcision and Jewish food laws, then what they're really doing is they're returning to paganism. Hmm. They're putting themselves back under the law that they were under before when they were in Adam, outside of Christ. They're returning to the work-for-life paradigm that Christ has saved them from. Wow. Yeah. Uh, the, the universal misery of mankind under the law's covenant mm-hmm. is so clear here in this passage and includes uh, the pagan world then. Yeah, paganism and Judaism. So you can be a religious 
you know, a religious Jew and be under the law, or you can be a pagan Gentile and under the law in Adam. And so uh, thinking, continuing to think about our passage, uh, John, what would you say, based on our text, is God's providential purpose in history? Mm. Of course, here we come to verse four, which is, which is just so filled with meaning, isn't it? We read, when the fullness of time had come. You know, as I read that, I wonder, what does it mean for time to be full? Hmm. You know, I, I think of an hourglass with sand that slowly goes from the top down through the middle into the bottom. And when the sand runs all the way through and it's all in the bottom half, your time's up, right? So in eternity past, we have God who sovereignly predetermined what would happen through all of human history. And ever since creation in the fall, then it's like the sand is slowly going down the hourglass through the centuries until that day in a manger when Christ was born. And so it's on that holy night that all of the sand has finally fallen to the bottom and there's no more waiting because Jesus Christ had finally come. So the God's providential purpose in history then is Christ. It's the coming of Christ. God then has a purpose through all of history. And, and so as we look at all the Old Testament then and all the history that takes place there, it's been pointing forward to the coming of God in the flesh through the incarnation. Mm. And uh, because God is in control of all things, then he has determined exactly the right time to send his son. So on Christmas, we celebrate the fullness of time, which is, of course, why then we actually divide our years by the birth of Christ, right? You have B.C., which stands for before Christ, and then mm -hmm. A.D., which is Latin for Anno Domini, which means in the year of the Lord. Mm -hmm. Christ is the one who has divided history from the darkness that we were under of, of the law's covenant to the light of Christ, which, of course, provides for us a new covenant, a, a covenant of grace. And yeah. so that's the, the great purpose of, of God at work through history. And it's all tied in that that phrase there in verse four. Amen, brother. Uh, well, looking at this passage, John, what do you say we learn about the Lord Jesus himself in terms of his person? Mm. Well, you see that even continuing then in verse four, uh, don't you? We, we see that uh, in the fullness, uh, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son born of a woman. So here we see the two natures of Christ, that he is both fully God, right, his son, and he's fully man, that he's born mm -hmm. of a woman. And because mankind is by nature enslaved to sin because of the fall of Adam, we're unable to live the life of righteousness that God created us to live, which is why our hope is found in God alone to free us from our sinfulness, why we're incapable of breaking free of, of this bondage which is why God sent his son in love for us. But God requires humanity as his image bearers to be righteous, which is why God needed to become one of us as a man. So both natures here are required in order for Christ to serve as our redeemer. And that's why we confess in the Athanasian creed, uh, this great creedal statement, for the right faith is that we believe and confess that our Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, is God and man, God of the substance of the Father, begotten before the worlds, and man of substance of his mother, born in the world. 
perfect God and perfect man of a reasonable soul and human flesh subsisting. Equal to the Father is touching his Godhead, and inferior to the Father is touching his manhood, who, although he is God and man, yet he is not two, but one Christ, one not by conversion of the Godhead into flesh, but by taking of that manhood into God, one altogether not by confusion of substance, but by unity of person. And so there's a lot there. But essentially we have Christ not where where his two natures, the divine and human nature, aren't somehow mixed together, right? In some kind of new hybrid mm-hmm. nature. And Christ's two natures are not two separate persons that somehow exist in one body. But Christ's divine and human natures are united together in one person. And it's because of this union in the person of Christ that we have a Savior. Amen. And so what a, you know, what a glorious truth is revealed to us here of Christ through his incarnation. And uh, we, we have all of this coming out here in the incarnation or, or the coming of Christ uh, at, in the fullness of time. Um, but, but it goes on then to say in, at the end of verse 4 then that, that Christ was born, and that's what we're talking about Christmas time, right? Christ mm-hmm. was born under the law. So uh, how would you speak of this? How would you think of this? And, and how are we then redeemed from bondage to the law? Yeah, well, some people think that when this says that Christ was born under the law, they think it means that he was born under the old covenant. Hmm. But that's wrong, because if you look at Galatians 4, 4 and 5 together, it says Jesus was born under the law to redeem those who were under the law. And who's he writing to? He's writing to Galatians, who are mostly Gentiles. Jesus did not have to fulfill the old covenant for these Gentiles because they were never under the old covenant. That's not their covenant. Uh, Jesus redeemed people from every tribe and tongue, not just those under the old covenant. And if you uh, to try to follow how Paul's thinking, you can look back at Romans 3.19, where you will find that every lost person in the whole world is under the law, not just those in the old covenant. Paul says, now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So Mm -hmm. the whole world uh, outside of Jesus is under the law. So when this says that Jesus was born under the law, what it means is that he was born under the law as a covenant, which is the covenant of uh, the terms of the covenant of works. He was under the command, do this and live. So Jesus, when this says he was born under the law, it means that he was born having to obey the law perfectly to earn eternal life. Hmm. And he had to obey the law's penalty to cancel the, the law's uh, curse. So Jesus had to, had to keep the essential terms of the covenant of works. Now, some people get confused about this, and they, they think that Jesus was actually born under the covenant of works. Uh, but if Jesus was born under the covenant of works, then he would have been born in Adam. Mm. And he was not born in Adam. Rather, Jesus was born under the terms of the covenant of redemption, yeah. which includes the basic terms of the covenant of works. But the covenant of redemption has more terms, more to obey than the covenant of works did. Jesus didn't only have to obey the law perfectly to earn eternal life. That's what Adam had to do, do this and live. And he could have eaten of the tree of the uh, 
of life, which, and then he would never have died. Uh, but Christ not only had to do that, Christ had to pay the penalty for his people. Uh, he had to pay the death penalty, uh, the curse of the law. And those are the terms of the covenant of redemption, which was eternally established in God's decree. Uh, but then Jesus actually obeyed that covenant of redemption in his earthly life and death. And so uh, to sum up, when this says that Christ was born under the law, it means he was born under the terms of the covenant of redemption, uh, which to Christ was a law covenant. He had to obey the terms of his law covenant to earn redemption and life for his people. Amen. And so then when we're united to him, we have a, a new covenant, a covenant of grace, uh, that, that we have been redeemed or set free Amen. from the law. And, That's right. Uh, you know, what, what's amazing then uh, as we continue to, to move through this passage in verse 5 is that redemption has a purpose. Yeah. Right? And uh, we see there that that we are redeemed from being under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. So the result of our redemption is adoption. We're, we're redeemed so that we can be adopted by God. Amen. Actually, um, we become his children. And mm -hmm. God chooses us as wretched sinners who deserve his judgment and sends his son to take our place so that we're adopted as his children, right? And mm -hmm. our relationship changes then from standing guilty before God as our judge to receiving love from God as our father. And all of this we see then is God's doing. That, that nothing is caused, uh, nothing in us has caused God to adopt us, but we've simply received adoption as children of God through the redemption of Christ. Um, but this passage then goes on to reveal the blessings that we receive because we've been adopted as God's children. And we, we, we see this because when, when God sends the Holy Spirit into our hearts, uh, that, that while God's law, of course, remained outside of us as an external authority that could not change our hearts, here the Holy Spirit then is sent inside of us to renew our hearts and transform us into the image of Christ. And so yes. it's through the Holy Spirit then that we have the freedom to call out to our Creator and Lord, Abba, Father. Amen. Amen. Of course, the intimacy <laughs> that we have in our relationship with God as our Father mm -hmm. is seen. Uh, but since we've been adopted as sons, then we also have this blessing of being an heir hmm. through God. So as his children, uh, we inherit his promises of justification before him and an eternal life of fellowship with him through uh, Jesus Christ. And as Christ is righteous, course, we're righteous in him. And as Christ has conquered death with the resurrection life, so we receive this eternal life as our inheritance. And, and so adoption is, is really a, a, a precious um, truth that we see here uh, through the coming of Christ. And whenever I talk about adoption, I, I all, my mind always comes to a, a well-known quote from J.I. Packer uh, in his book, in Knowing God. But uh, I love what Packer says. He he says, you sum up the whole of New Testament teaching in a single phrase if you speak of it as a revelation of the fatherhood of the Holy Creator. In the same way, you sum up the whole of the New Testament religion if you describe it as the knowledge of God as one's Holy Father. If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. 
and having God as his father, if this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. For everything that Christ taught, everything that makes the New Testament new and better than the old, everything that is distinctively Christian as opposed to merely Jewish is summed up in the knowledge of the fatherhood of God. And so he ends by saying, our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. Amen. And it's such a, an, an important thing for us to realize as we celebrate Christmas is that we are children of God and, and heirs uh, through Christ of, of the blessings that he gives. And so Amen, I, I, this passage makes that so clear. So how would you say that all three persons of the Trinity are working for our redemption? Well, it, isn't it interesting how uh, the Trinity, all three persons are mentioned in this passage, right? Yeah. Uh, God's Trinitarian work, of course, is found through all the pages of Scripture, but but here we find all three persons mentioned. In verse 4, uh, we read of God the Father sending his Son so that we would be adopted as sons. But then in verse 6, we also see God sending forth the Holy Spirit of his Son so that we would know that we are adopted as sons. And Amen. so we have God the Father who appoints a time for our redemption. That's what we saw uh, the, with the fullness of time, right? God mm -hmm. the Father a time for our redemption, but then his son is born to accomplish our redemption, and then his spirit comes into our hearts to assure us of our redemption. Amen. So our redemption in these verses is thoroughly Trinitarian hmm. uh, because it's all of, of God's grace, and, and it's why the Trinity uh, is so central to salvation because, of course, our God, uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, is the one through the covenant of redemption that has sought to bless us and bestow this grace on us through this great plan of redemption. Amen, brother. And and as you reflect on this whole passage and think about all the things we've uh, discussed, what do you think this means as we celebrate Christmas? Well, of course, here we see both the humility of Christ and the wonders of his love. And Christmas provides us then with an annual opportunity to rejoice in Christ as our Redeemer. Now, I know in the Reformed tradition, there are some who uh, do not observe Christmas. And uh, this is not, you know, this is not law. This is not required of us. And uh, so, you know, I'm not going to be here saying that Christians must celebrate Christmas or uh, anything like that. But, but what, a, what a wonderful opportunity we're given in our society to celebrate and worship Christ. Uh, as, as the classic Christmas carol invites us, O come, let us adore him, Christ the Lord. And so one of the things that I love uh, about celebrating Christmas and, and really about so many of the Christmas carols uh, and the hymns that are sung is how theologically rich they are and, and how they connect our hearts to Christ uh, to, today, they're too often replaced by cheap secular counterfeits when you turn on uh, the Christmas radio station or, or anything else. But we have a glorious Savior who's worthy of our worship for his incarnation. And, and I think these truths naturally um, unite our hearts uh, to his as we worship and rejoice in the coming of Christ in light of the truths that we find in this passage. Um, but but second, I, I think it's also good 
uh, in this season to remember that Christ came so we'd be freed from the law. That Christ is a precious reminder here, and, and Christmas is a precious reminder here, that we are not condemned for our sins, but we are loved as God's sons. So Christ, then as our Savior, because we are adopted as God's sons, then becomes our elder brother. And he's the firstborn of many brethren, of, of many children, right? To where we, we uh, Revelation, of course, speaks about a great multitude that no one can number because of the, the successful work of Christ on the cross. And, and so uh, all of this comes because of God's love being manifest as through the incarnation and the birth of Jesus. And so, again, uh, I think Christmas is a wonderful time to worship. It's, it's a wonderful time to rejoice in our freedom uh, from the law uh, because of the grace we've received in Christ. And it, it's a wonderful time to uh, meditate on uh, what Scripture uh, reveals to us about having God as our Father and what it means to be His adopted children in the family of faith. Uh, and, and so, again, we, we have this focus on uh, the church as those who are adopted uh, children, sons and daughters of God, and uh, the, the blessing of being able to worship him in that way. So uh, there's just a few thoughts. I don't know if you have anything to add, brother, but love, love to hear if you have any reflections about how we celebrate Christmas in light of these truths. No, brother, that sounds great. Thank you so much. Well, again, I hope this has been helpful to our listeners that uh, we see how the law and the gospel even connects to our celebration of Christmas. Uh, but we thank everyone for listening. Of course, this is the Man Modern Merriman podcast on the Man of God Network, brought to you by Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary. So if you'd like to know more about CBTS, please visit us online at cbtseminary.org. That's cbtseminary.org. If you want to find a uh, like a classic instrumental Christmas carol, yeah, yeah some kind of Christmas. I mean, I, I obviously recognize yeah. carol instrumental. I'm sorry, not your Christmas song. Uh, Gra Grandma got run over by a reindeer's Tom's favorite, but. Uh... <laughs>